Who's this? Oh, you're an entrepreneur? Oh, you're a real estate investor. Oh, you're trying to learn from those who did it. Well, come into the lab then. Put your white coat on, gloves on, notepad, and let's build y'all. Real estate experiment. What is happening, y'all? Today, I have the pleasure of having Nick Earls with me and Eric Denicola. Did I get that right, my friend? Did you I get it? it right? Listen, this you is why this, right. this this is a special one. This is a special one. I just want to preface it because, you know, I got my boys from Massachusetts here and this doesn't happen often. And so I'm excited to talk real estate in the Northeast because that's where I ran away from. I went to Atlanta in the Southeast. And but I mean, this is a beautiful piece of land, uh, beautiful community. Uh, I grew up there, went to school there. I'm still there. I still dipping my toes in and out. And so it's, it's really interesting. It will be very interesting to hear what you guys have been able to do. Um, these two gentlemen are for winter spring capital and lo and behold, you guys have known each other for more than 20 years. Uh, is that, is that correct? Did I get that number right? Almost 20, but almost yes, 20 years. I'm going to round up. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I, I think I want to preface that because it says a lot about what you guys have been able to do. Obviously, we were talking about this offline. Uh, you guys have 56 million of uh, multifamily assets in uh, uh, development specifically. That's your niche. Uh, you have something in the pipeline. Uh, it's a big one in Brighton that's happening uh, in, in a big development deal around 25 million. Uh, we're not going to disclose everything until it comes out. Then we'll blast it out. Uh, but you guys have been in this space. Uh, you're making some movement. And it's very interesting because you're you're tapping into a niche um, that, you know, and it's an opportunity. Uh, I know, Eric, you were talking about this, uh, you know, just before we hit the record button about the the opportunities that are, are here in Massachusetts and where there's difficulty is where the opportunity is. Uh, so I want to talk to you guys about that. Um, but first of all, welcome to the lab, my Mastonians. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. for having us on. Great to be in the lab. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the lab. So gentlemen, I got to ask you, you, uh, you guys have some interesting background that I want to highlight first. Uh, it, you know, walk me through a little bit of, I know you guys met in high school, uh, but I, I think you guys have both a very niched um, background, you know, working for the same company uh, in, in a full, in a real estate development consulting firm, and then kind of graduating together to the next step development development. And then you're like, you know what, we're going to do our own development. Uh, take me a step back. Cause I think it's good to give people some context of the, that foundation that you guys have built to then where you are today. And then we'll find out why you really went into this niche because not everybody, typically some people run in the other direction. Uh, they, they, they go in the other direction. So, Talk to me about the beginning foundation of this development education and, and career uh, uh, that you guys uh, started to, 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 to learn together. Why don't we start with you, Nick? Yeah, so as you said, um, we've known each other for almost 20 years now. Uh, met each other in high school. Good friends, played football together, powerlifting, played video games together. Uh, a lot of team-oriented stuff. Had a couple other friends. Another buddy of ours also works in the company, Kyle, and um, always just kind of thought, you know, we're not going to work for some big company. We don't work for someone else. Kind of a little bit of a rebellious streak, maybe, but also kind of we just kind of saw the writing on the wall. You know, that quote, you know, don't build someone else's dream. We kind of knew that from a young age. So we'd say we want to start a company and stuff like that. 
went our separate ways for a few years, uh, went to different colleges. I ended up getting my real estate license um, in 2011 and was selling apartment buildings for a few years, smaller ones. And I, you know, we thought, okay, maybe this is uh, the way to do it. You know, we we're saying maybe we start with real estate. That's a, that's a way we could break out of the cycle, break out of the rat race mm -hmm. or whatever. And um, so we had this plan to save up money for a few years. We wanted to buy a rental, but what I learned um, during my time as an agent was the condo market in Boston was very strong and you could develop condos. And I came from kind of construction background. My parents owned a general contracting company growing up. My brother's a carpenter. So I kind of had some confidence in that space, maybe where some other people wouldn't, um, which I could say people should be, you know, confident to dive in, but I was confident just because of that background so we thought, why don't we take a whack at this development thing? Um, and that was back in 2015. And we did our uh, first project, a small project, um, but it's been multifamily condominium development has been one of the main things we've been doing ever since. Wow. Uh, so that's very interesting. I, I got to say, Eric, is he always this serious? Nick, you mean business, man. I When you said friends, I was like, are you sure you? Sound a little serious, man. Like, are you sure you guys are friends or just business? I like that. Is he? <laughs> no, we're, we're literally, we're best friends. This is my best no, friend I, right here. I know. I'm and, messing uh, around. <laughs> he, he, he's not as, you You did look a little serious on that answer. I will, I'll agree with him. No, Nick, <laughs> Nick, so Nick is the guy that I want at the other side of the clothing table because this man means business. I could just tell. <laughs> and, uh, uh, let me ask you, because let's make this fun. What's the dynamic here? Because um, we always talk about partnerships, you know, and, and I'm going to get into what Nick said. I don't want to let that slip through the cracks. But while we're on this topic, you know, and talk about partnerships, you talk about who's good at what. And we, we're, we're joking around a little bit. Uh, but what's, you know, where do you feel? Do, do you, is it true that, you know, you, Eric, need to be the strength to uh, uh, Nick's weaknesses? And Nick, you got to be his weaknesses? Or is that? not even true and you guys could both just go in and and be have the same strength like i, I haven't heard otherwise so i want to let's we're in the lab here let's talk about this do you guys complement one another or or what's the deal yeah i mean i i think we we complement one another but at the same time we have a lot of the same sort of shared philosophies and shared strengths uh, but there are definitely some things you know that he's better at that i'm not as good at and vice versa um and i think one thing this kind of unique about our relationship and the way we work together is we do share a lot of these same goals where it's like, okay, what, what's the end, the end goal here is, you know, financial freedom for our families, that, that sort of type of thing. Um, so we can sort of dive into something and, you know, there's no offense taken if, if, you know, Nick will point out to me, like, you know, that's, I don't think that's going to work. You know, if maybe I have an idea and he says, I don't think that's going to work for this reason. There's no personal, you know, um, enmity or any negativity about any anything so we have a very good working relationship and because you know we've worked together for so long been friends for a while it's easy to bounce ideas off each other or we know who, we can be on the same page very easily there's not a lot of strife there's nothing like that we don't really butt heads if we do it's it's always like for the greater goal of of the company you know of what we're trying to accomplish um and it's, it, so there is the, get back to your original question. I, there's probably a little bit of like, 
you know, maybe you're strength in one thing, me in another, but I think we're, we're on the same page with a lot of stuff, which makes it, you know, much easier to deal with. Yeah. That's important. Uh, sharing the same core values is, is definitely important. Uh, and, and on that topic, um, and again, being able to complement each other uh, and being on the same page on that topic uh, in the beginning, when, you know, uh, Nick was getting into the, his license construction, where you had a different phase as well, were you doing some that was completely different, similar, because I know you yeah. guys were away. Where, where were you at at that point? Just to give a little bit of context before we talk about the empire you guys have built. Thank you. Yeah, we, we were, I was yeah. down in New Jersey. I was working in New York City. Um, I worked in public equity. I traded stocks right out of college, which was awesome. I enjoyed that. Um, but I do remember, you know, I always mention this anecdote. It's like I sat down in the first, you know, nine o'clock or whatever, um, in the first, you know, minute. I'm sitting there and I thought, I don't think I can do this till I'm 65. And it's like, okay, if that's my mentality, you know, at 23, the first minute I'm sitting here working for someone else, I think uh, I got to start planning something in the background here. And I enjoyed it. I worked down there for a bit. Um, then I worked in private equity down there. Um, and then, you know, Nick had contacted me and said, okay, let's, let's maybe start getting into this. So, you know, we saved up a bit uh, for that first project. Um, several years it took to save up. And then um, I moved back here and we sort of started, we just jumped right into it. He had found right. something, yeah. a good project to sort of invest in early on, convinced me of it. And I said, all right, this is the ticket. This is what we talked about doing. We've, we've now found it as he kind of alluded to at the beginning. So you always had that itch. Uh, that's that, 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 of that financial freedom itch. That's, that's very interesting. Hey, listen, you guys are starting to creep me out and I'll give you a quick insight here for our listeners. We got some very, very weird similarity, right? I'm here in Manhattan. I, I had, I, I was consulting uh, in Jersey city. Uh, this oh, is not I where, where I lived. <laughs> I know, but listen to this. It gets even creepier than that. You went to Stephen Institute of Technology, right? Yep. My supervisor at the time, who was in an investment bank had gone to that school as well. Wow. And I was just like, I was just like, dude, what? What is happening? Stop it, gentlemen. Stop it. We gotta stop meeting like this. So <laughs> we this is found very interesting. The ultimate podcast. Yeah, we this you found your dip in your toes. And maybe I need to just settle, you know, maybe I, I got my hands in, in too many different things. I'm I'm well traveled, I have to say. That's half of the story, but that's interesting. So New Jersey. Uh, Nick, you're in Massachusetts getting your license. Uh, you have construction background, that's the family background. Let's talk about this unique uh, uh, asset class. The condo development, is that, am I saying that co correctly? Yes. Yep. Why? Talk to me. Market opportunity uh, would be the, the easy answer there. That's what the original uh, reason why we got into it. Um, so in Boston, you have, you know, strong backbone of the universities there and then the life sciences industry and biotech really taken off um, one of the number one cities in the country you have a lot of demand from higher income not necessarily super high income but higher income people who can afford you know a uh, 400 to a million dollar condo generally our price range that we deal with um lot of demand for that. The planning agency in Boston actually did a study in 2015 for population projections by the year 2030. And we surpassed it already a couple of years ago. Ooh. So 
Um, couple that with the way you get projects permitted in the city of Boston, the zoning code is very outdated. So it doesn't allow very much density. So you need special permission from a, a zoning approval. Um, this is this whole process is called entitlement. And that that process is very hard and very strict. And the neighborhoods that have a lot of power, there's a lot of not in my backyard stuff going on, um, which just leads to a lot of projects either being denied or not being pursued that might have been built maybe in a, a less strict city, which leads to a, a supply shortage and demand in in a, in addition to the high level of demand. So that just kind of creates a situation where there's not enough housing. Um, condos are a preferred way for, you know, living in the city with home ownership, obviously, if you don't want to rent. So there's a lot of demand for condos and um, we've had a lot of success with it. Wow. Okay. So when I hear, so, so you, when you say, okay, this is very interesting. Are you saying the opportunity is, cause you said so, there's a supply shortage. Is there supply, is a supply shortage there because of the difficulty of being able to build there? Is that what it is? So in other words, I love this because, you know, one of my favorite books is uh, that you guys might appreciate it. The Millionaire Fast Lane by MJ DeMarco. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, talks about the four, there's four pillars. There's a C-E-N-T-S, control, entry, need, time, and scale. Anytime he um, is um, evaluating an opportunity, he looks at those five things. And, you know, the, the, the entry is it a low or high barrier of entry i'm hearing that this is a high barrier of exactly entry, yep. and therefore you're seeing the opportunity which is interesting because i think most people typically want to make their life easy but i think as an entrepreneur as investors you saw the opportunity where there was difficulty so okay so let's let's let let's uh get some enlightenment because i i certainly need it and i'm sure that uh, the listeners would appreciate it as well Let's talk about this zoning code entitlement thing. What you said something about not much density. Can can you give a little bit more context? And then at the same time, I want to make sure um, that we're also uh, touching on um, when you say condo. That maybe that could be ambiguous. Can you give me an alignment? Are we talking? You know, you know, eight units together. You know, are we talking twelve, hundred, fifty? Like, what kind of condo units are we talking about? I think that will help as well because I can picture it. I'm thinking of already of Seaport, and I'm thinking of all those areas. But for some of our listeners who don't really know the asset class here and the product, uh, I think that'll be some good context. Yeah. So you know, when Nick talks about entitlement and, and zoning in Boston and th you know this can apply anywhere but the city is really um, you know it's really city dependent um, municipality dependent whatever you want to say so um, you know the the entitlement process sort of involves um, you know many steps and Nick can kind of fill in if I'm missing anything here but I'll try to make a, a good overview for the listeners is so you, you know you you might find your property first, whatever you're maybe looking at, there's an opportunity that comes to you and you say, okay, um, this is in a two family zone. So the zoning law for that, the zoning laws for that area say, okay, you can build a, a two family structure here. So you think by right, what we could build, then this kind of answers your condo question too, um, is a two unit building. Um, so we could then 
break it into two individual condos. So it might look like a two family, a duplex type thing that someone might be familiar with. Um, and it'd be two individual owned units by two separate mm. owners, or, you know, maybe you'd have an owner, so an investor buys both and owns them as condos and rents them. But that's sort of an, into the minutia that, so that you find your land or your property, maybe it's a vacant piece of land and you can start fresh. Maybe it's a, a other old building, old house you want to knock down. Um, either way, you first do that and you figure out, okay, how many units can I do here? And so typically two units with the prices in Boston, it's, it's not really going to work out. You want to get more, more than that. It, maybe you find a situation where two units could work if they, if you know, the condos sell for a lot. So you find it, you see how many could I do here? And simultaneously, you're looking up what are comps, what are condo comps selling for? Um, so are they selling out at a high enough price per square foot? That's kind of the basis we look at. What is the price per square foot? Uh, are they selling out in this neighborhood, in this area for a high enough price point that we could come in, buy it for this price, construct it for this much per square foot, and that there's still a difference there to profit based on what we could then sell it for per square foot. So what, that's, that's very early stage kind of this whole entitlement process. So we then, when it really kicks in is when you, when you actually start dealing with the city um, and the neighbors. So something like that, you'd find a two family zone and you say, okay, the, I could make money here um, and I could create new homes for people, but I need to build, you know, a, a building that has eight condo units in it for this to work just based mm -hmm. on the numbers, based on how much it costs to construct based on, how much it costs the, the seller, how much does the owner want for this current property? You factor all that in. So then you start working with, um, you know, an architect, the zoning attorney, because you know you can only do two units as of right there based on the zoning code, but you want to do eight. Um, so oh, you're interesting. Need, okay. I'm glad yeah. you highlighted that. So you're, you're saying um, you're, you're anticipating almost. You're, so you're saying, why can you only do two? I guess let's talk about that for a second. What, why are you restricted to two? It, the city is, you know, any city is divided up into zones based on density in the area, or typically these are very outdated. So they might, you might have an area that's supposed to be just for all two family houses. It, it feels, has a better feel for that area. They think having a big apartment building just wouldn't fit in. Maybe you have a downtown shopping district that's zoned for just single story businesses, something like that, commercial retail spaces. Um, so different gotcha. areas of the city are zoned differently. And you, you'll notice that some really nice cities and towns you go through, you might notice um, there's one area where you might see like a Dunkin' Donuts, in, but instead of the typical colors, you see all gold and all the businesses are, you know, in gold. These, these are it's like historic of, almost like, yeah, sure. That's like a, disrupt. Exactly. The, the, that has to yeah, fit a certain, you know, that, and that's, not necessarily what we deal with. We're more dealing with the size and dimensions and number of residential units in neighborhoods. Um, but all that plays into zoning and, and use regulations within zoning and, and things like that. So we'll know, okay, we can build two units here, but to build eight, be the only, the only way we can make money is to build eight. So we then, we start this process. How do we get to build these eight units when only two are allowed? We will also look around to see, oh, there's a, 15 unit building down the street. How did they get, did they get zoning approval? Did they get variances granted? And we'll find out they did because they're in a two family zone. So they must've. Um, so you just, you start a process that's almost specific to every project. There's an overall process the city wants you to go through, 
but really it always takes on its own like life it's an each project is like a its own animal and you you meet with the neighbors um you bring in you meet with civic groups that represent an area um you show them your proposal you try to work with them and come to an agreement that they like most neighbors are not they don't like anything they don't want any development so you're almost dealing with eight units or nothing you know that's kind of there um that's your the two sides you're fighting so you go through this long process of many meetings saying okay then you bring your architect can we maybe would you guys like this and you show them a little redesign can would you guys like this and maybe you end up landing on five units in this case but you figure out oh it's i could still make money Uh, i could still create new homes for people these would be homes people want to buy um, so this is when you decide, okay, and you're dealing with your architect the whole time. They're involved. They're recreating the building. They're creating plans to match the neighbor's requests. Um, you hopefully get the neighbors to support you and at least move them away from opposing you. Um, and this is all in preparation for your zoning hearing where okay. you'll present your you know, final proposal and say, we need variances granted on these zoning restrictions and these zoning Uh, requirements so you might have you know your building in the area might be allowed to be 30 feet based on that zone and your building is going to be 40 and you say i need a variance is granted for height a variance granted for height same with side setbacks maybe it has to be at least 20 feet from one side but your building might only be 10 feet so these are sort of dimensional variances um this is you know, the use variances would be something maybe you put a, a residence in a downtown area, an apartment building where it's not zoned for that. It's zoned for more uh, commercial stuff, something like that. And a um, density variance is cities deal with density differently. Nick mentioned it. Um, but you'll have sort of specific metrics that a city uses to say, how big should this thing be based on the lot size? Like, percentage of lot coverage or a ratio of the floor area um so i'm, I'm getting really deep into this I'm no no this is track, I, but... this is this is the lab i i'm okay I'm, I'm glad you went down deep because again we don't appreciate this when you see it and and not yeah, every yeah. you know and i'm gonna get to a next point which i'm excited because you open up that door uh but not all real estate is created equal and that's that, this is the point we're trying to make here yeah that's now, true as I'm listening to this, Eric, and by the way, I got to say that was a very seamless transition, how I asked a question open-handedly, and then you just took it over. You guys are just good at this. Um, right. <laughs> so I appreciate that. But, okay, I want to know who, and, and I'm sure the listeners would, would love to, to know, you mentioned neighbors, you mentioned city. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of stakeholders involved here. Who are those people, and what does it take to get something approved because i guess in order for you to know that you got to know who you're facing with here and what their intentions are and what they're what they're trying yeah. to protect your stakeholder management who yeah. are these folks just so we have more context because it sounds like an entire committee you got you're going to war here like multiple you, committees <laughs> so who are these people is it neighbors you said city as in like the city the city like who else is involved yeah so i i would say again that this this defers this can be completely different process from city to city but like we talked about earlier this the red tape and the barriers create the opportunity so in a lot of cities that have very high prices for condos there's going to be a similar process to what i'm i'm describing and strategies could be used you know 
in New York City, in Boston, San Francisco, cities like this are all going to be pretty similar, probably. Um, but for us, we have to have a zoning attorney involved. Um, that's someone who we hire to represent us throughout the process. They also file the petitions on our behalf. Um, you'll have your architect involved because you need, obviously, to be presenting not finalized plans until you're, you, you come on a final design, but preliminary designs that you can discuss with the neighbors and the groups. And then that's your team. And then on the other side, you've got in Boston, you've got the mayor's office who is kind of uh, represents the mayor and also tries to represent the community. But sometimes, you know, they might say the community is slightly against your project, but has some supporters, the mayor's office might support you in that situation. If the community is completely against you, then they're not going to support you. But, you know, they kind of had their own agenda, depending on what the mayor's policies are. So we, we just had a, a mayor, Marty Walsh, he's, he left now because he's with the Biden administration, but he had a very pro development policy. So even though um, the city itself had, has these very restrictive rules. There's not political muscle to change the rules, but the mayor's office during this sort of approval process is still pro-development. So there's kind of nuances to it. So that's the mayor's office. And then you've got civic groups. Um, every neighborhood has its own civic group, which will be kind of made up of you know, kind of politically active people who care about development, I guess, and, and this sort of stuff. Um, usually in favor, of in favor of development or against it? Could be either. They're usually against it. <clears throat> but there's, you'll, you'll see people in civic groups that are in, fa in favor, but they're just rare. Um, the thing I'll say is that the, the thing that motivates you to, to join this group or join these meetings usually is negative feelings because it's going to be at like a 7 p.m. on a, a weeknight or whatever and a normal person is just going to throw the the notice in the trash someone who's pro-development will go oh, okay nice they'll throw it in the trash the only people who show up are people who are pissed off you know because they have the motivation <laughs> so you, you're dealing with a negative crowd from the beginning um, because you'll go around the neighborhood and get letters of support and there's a lot of people who do support it, but they don't show up to the meetings and the and letter. They, they, doesn't... They, they love their dinner time a little bit more than they do. Exactly. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's people who do support it and they have no problem with it, but they don't show up to the meetings and the people who show up to the meetings hold more weight. So the people who join these civic groups have the most power. Um, and then you also have the direct abutters, the people who are closest to your project within i believe uh 300 feet is it eric yeah 300 yeah. feet and those people show up to separate neighborhood meetings um so those are kind of the major parties involved with the preliminary process you've got to kind of get on the good graces of all of them um or try to anyways do your best and then finally the last group is the zoning board of appeals they're the ones who grant you permission and they kind of look at how well you did at appeasing all these different groups throughout the process, how you appease them. Um, 
there's a lot of different ways, but um, some of the strategies that have really worked for us is a lot of these projects we're doing are, are what are known as urban infill, where it's already a developed area, but there's some parcels that are kind of say like it's, we're talking about the two family zone earlier. Say you're in a two family zone, but the lot is two times the size of all the other lots in that zone. We'd call that an underutilized parcel because it hasn't been developed to really an appropriate use. It's a little bit different from all the lots in the area. Um, so we, we look for lots like that, but when you're going into those areas, you know, it's already developed. So one thing that's very important is making your building blend in with the neighborhood, um, respecting, you know, traditional architecture to the area. Doesn't mean you have to just copycat it, but our I have like a postmodern building in an area that's completely the opposite. Something along a lot those of lines, fight right? on those. Exactly. You know, you'll get huge opposition. Um, those wow. and those can be built. We've built them but it's only in certain areas where, you know, you're not smack dab in the middle of a bunch of, you know, triple deckers that were built in, you know, late 1800s um, that you're going to have trouble trying to build something creative in that area. So that's a very important one. <clears throat> and also um, trying to find ways to hide the density. So say you're in a two family zone and you're building seven units. We had a project like this. It's all triple deckers. You're going down the street, very densely settled area. We had a long, narrow lot. So what our architect designed it. So from the street, it just looks like a triple decker, like a traditional uh, three family, like three units in it. Um, but the building extends very far back into the lot, which you can't tell from the street. It blends right in people have actually mistaken it for a two family. Um, so that sort of thing. And our, you have a good architect that uh, understands how important it is to get the neighbor's approval, which we do. Um, you know, that's a very important thing, building a team like that, because they'll put the extra effort in to some creative designs. We've had a, a couple projects approved recently that have all followed the strategy. Um, where it looks like it blends right into the neighborhood, but we're actually tucking in 10 units or six units or seven units. You're kidding. But, but I would, you'd feel like, are, are you saying it's just the optics that matters at that point? It helps a lot. Yeah. We'll be right back. Wow. Jeez. I mean, just listening to that, I broke a sweat. I mean, you guys must love politics. <laughs> I mean, no. this is this is a whole no, no. You're like no. So let me ask you real quick: uh, How involved are you in this, um, um, this straining effort? And it's worth it, obviously. Is it more your lawyer? Is it more like you guys are showing up to those meetings? You delegate someone else? Like, how does that look like? Are you sending Eric? Are you sending, you know, you guys rotating rock, paper, scissors? Like who's going to these meetings? Like I, I want to, how, how does that work? Um, well, no, we're all there. The whole team is there. We'll, you know, we'll sort of start off, introduce ourselves. Um, sometimes I think it's, you know, 
if the attorney isn't there, it's almost like better off, but you need them because of the legal nature of the variances. And it's just how it works in Boston. Everyone, every developer has their attorney sort of make the case because that's what you're doing. You're kind of making a case to get these variances granted, even from the start of this process with the neighbors, because if you're in a, say a three family zone and you just want to do a three family building, you don't need to go through this process. You could just go apply for your building permit. Um, So yeah, the architects there where they're, um, we've seen developers who have, you know, once they got to that final stage, the zoning hearing where they've brought, you know, neighbors, people who maybe live in a building they own and kind of support them and stuff. See, so there's a lot of strategies, but the, the key, you know, the key team members, the developer, architect, zoning attorney are usually at all the meetings. And we have, you know, we've had a couple funny almost situations where, Nick and I will show up at sort of the first meeting to introduce ourselves. And I think some of these people are almost thrown off where younger guys, they expect these guys like buttoned up suits and everything and, and big greedy developer. And then it's us. And they're almost a little like thrown off, you know, Nick's got the beard and we're just like, uh, I'm kind of tall and goofy. And so it's like a, it's a funny thing. We had one where the 10 unit Nick, we went up and we thought they're going to have some screen to present on, but they didn't. So we had some pamphlets that we handed out and then we held our phones on stage and in, in shorts. It was a very, uh, remember that the outdoor one. Um, so the, it's, yeah. it's, those are kind of funny anecdotes, but generally speaking, you go and you present, you tell, you introduce yourself, you tell them how you're connected to the community. Um, and that kind of kicks it off. And then you're right. all involved with every meeting from there. Got it. So Eric, one second, you know, on, on that note, and I got to ask you both this, and I would love for you both to chime in on this. For me, real estate has always seemed like a win-win situation, right? We talk about improving the community, property taxes, etc. Why so much pushback? Is it just for the sake of maintaining a specific code? Like, is there some other side that we're not like, what does the other side think? Do you guys know? You must know at this point. What is the pushback here? Doesn't everybody win? We Eric, what are your our, thoughts on that? I mean, we we have our we definitely have a lot of thoughts on that because what you just said is exactly how we would think about it too. Everyone wins. We put up some of these condos in new areas. Not only is it maybe replacing an underutilized lot or a house that's old and decrepit, maybe no one's even living in it an eyesore for the neighborhood, not only that, but it increases the property values without fail. And then another developer says, Oh, they did a six unit building over there. Okay. I got to get in this neighborhood. Can I give you more, you know, Mr. Mr. Homeowner down the street here, Mrs. Homeowner. Can we, and it's, it's funny though, because you say that and that's how we view it. And we're, you know, on on more property taxes, exactly. You're bringing people who want to live in this neighborhood. People aren't just, it's not just about us making money. You know, a lot of people kind of have that perception, but it's about people now are buying a home to move into your neighborhood that maybe zero one or even, you know, maybe two, maybe zero people were able to live on that property before. Now six families might, you know, not just six, maybe have 20 people in this building. Um, so that is how we view it. But, you know, a lot of the, you, you kind of get, you go up there and present, you almost get like the tomatoes thrown at you. You know, you kind of have to just take it. We get people shouting out like you greedy animals. And they, cause they see people buying a condo for 500 grand, you know, and they think we're getting a $500,000 check into our pocket. You know, they don't know, you got to get a big loan on this, put, put personal guarantees on our own homes and with cost, you know, all this money to build the unit. And then you got to hire agents to sell it. It's, 
it's just another business. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and they don't want the construction next to them or the sound, which, you know, that to me is honestly the biggest, uh, almost like most reasonable objection we get is I don't want this construction site next to my home, which that that's reasonable. But a lot of the other ones, we can't figure it out. We, we can't, we don't get it. You know, people say, Oh, you're displacing people from the neighborhood. We've never done that, you know, once, you know, we've never done that. Um, there've been times early on, we bought a two family, we lived in it. We lived in the neighborhood while we were permitting it for, you know, almost a year. No one had lived in it prior. Um, so I think people, a lot of times will have a miss, you know, sort of, a um, the, the, the wrong perception about what a developer is trying to do, at least in our case, because we, yeah. we are trying to do stuff that fits in with the neighborhood and, and we're almost at as complete of a loss as you are. And we see these people all the time. I don't really know. So you, you brought up, Eric, you brought up a really good point. And, and, and um, Nick, I want to get uh, your, your take on this too. Uh, the one point that I heard, and it's a, it's a real thing that we're talking about here in America and really across the world is, is affordable housing, right? And, and affordable housing, I'd love for you guys to, to maybe help me, um, you know, because you guys are more qualified than anybody else. You know, I, I did see on there, you guys, um, you know, we're designated the developer of choice by the Department of Neighborhood Development for affordable homeownership projects in Roxbury, uh, which we know is a, a, an area that's, uh, uh, you know, where it's being invested into, right? It needs some development. Uh, but when you guys hear affordable housing or when you hear someone say, you know, you're pushing us out, help me understand, you know, define like what it, what it means for you. What's the right way to do it. What's the wrong way to do it. You know, in, 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 again, we're all in it to make money, build communities, win, build, win, wins. Um, maybe can you highlight how, you know, in your turf, you've seen this, how, it, how it's not always a win-win and how maybe developers or people who are investing with those kind of developers. How can it be done the right way? Is there a right way? Loaded question here, but you know, that's what we do in the lab. <laughs> uh, Nick, I'm, so I'm I think it's on all, you. What do you think? No, what are your, let's what are your go, thoughts on that? Let's yeah. go for it. I think there's a lot of elements to it. Is um, yeah, what we're building a lot of times is more luxury product, but it's new construction. Like that's kind of the nature of the beast. So if unless you're getting some kind of subsidy, um, which we can get into the affordable housing project we're doing. Um, unless you're getting some kind of subsidy from some outside source, yes, you need to, companies need to make a profit. They can't just do it for free or, or, or at a loss even, which would be more likely. Um, so in, in my opinion, in Boston, a lot of the projects that you see for this condo development strategy, especially a lot of people have, um, you know, made, made names for themselves and risen in this market and, and have good companies now. And I don't think they've displaced a single person. They're buying a two family or a single family that's owned by the same family for 40 years in East Boston or Dorchester or whatever. And those homeowners are, are long-term residents and they're getting, you know, they bought their house for 40,000 or whatever decades ago and we're, we're writing them us developers we're writing them 
checks for a million bucks, two million bucks, whatever say, it is. Right. I mean, that's the reality of economics and that's, that's what's happening. It's not like people are getting the boot here and, 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 and you know, and, and it's being asked to leave. Right. I mean, there's money involved in this. So, so I'm glad you're highlighting this. Um, and so is that, so you're saying, what about, um, you know, and, I, and I'm sorry for interrupting. It just, I think you brought up such a good point. What about, you know, you look at a place for, you know, like Seaport or something where it was completely deserted. I don't know if you guys nothing. touched that area. There was nothing there, right? And you're just building up. Is that the same kind of friction there or is that a kind of a different kind of uh, um, kind of land of the, the, the game here? That would definitely be... It's not, I, I'm not going to say anything's easy to get permitted in Boston, but probably a lot of those larger developments there while the seaport was going up, as I said, uh, former, former mayor Walsh, that was kind of a pet project of his in a certain sense. Um, it, came, it rose, you know, under his leadership and, um, a lot of those projects, I think probably had a higher, an easier time getting permitted for whatever a, a 200 unit building than we have for some of these like six unit buildings we've done all right so so okay so here's the big elephant in the room right you guys are doing this at scale you're raising money now uh how does that look like when you have so many barriers like you know typically some of the folks we've had on is like oh yeah value add here's the game plan here's our operating memorandum you know easy enough you guys are dealing with some hurdles up front what does raising capital look like on those do you raise it before raise it after you get clearance do you spend the money and then maybe not even get to you know you know follow through if you don't get a variance like how is that factored into your risk i don't know if you know eric you want to drop a little insight on this as well and, and and nick right at right after yeah i uh I mean, there's a, there's a couple components to this. Cause what you said, that's a very accurate description You're It's not a slam dunk. Okay, guys here, we have this property. It costs this much invest this much. And you know, we'll get all, everyone will get paid. You'll get a return because of all this uncertainty. You really don't know what you can build. So there's, there's a few avenues you can go and, and strategies that we've um, used to, to make this work. Um, one is you can, Buy, buy the property outright and risk that, you know, you're not going to get approved, but you have a backup plan, you know, okay, it's a three family zone. Worst case, I can do three units. I did the math. It'll probably still break even, or at least won't lose money. In those type of scenarios, we try to hold off bringing in investor capital in if we can, until maybe the point of zoning approval, or we make it clear that here's the scenario. This might happen. If it does this is what you're kind of left with. You probably won't lose money. We'll be very clear. We haven't lost money in a project. We've been fortunate enough, um, but we've been very careful about the project. So we might say to potential investors, here's the scenario for this one. If it does work out, you know, you're taking a bigger risk with us. You, you, you know, you're going to get a bigger piece of the pie, something like that. So that's mm. Avenue one. Avenue two would be the same piece of land you find, but you go to the owner and say, okay, can I buy this from you contingent upon getting approval for 10 units? And so that means like, say that, say maybe if they just went on the open market, sold their land, they could get 500 grand for it. We might have to go to them and say, look, cause we would do the math and know this could work. We might say, look, if you let us 
wait to pay you or back out of the deal, either one could happen until we get approval or permits even, which would be full further along for 10 units, we'll pay you 800 grand for that mm. same. So it's, you know, you can get some owners, we've had this happen where some are like, okay, that sounds awesome. It doesn't work out. I still own my house. No problem. You're right. on your especially, way. Especially if they weren't, maybe that was in there. They weren't intention. even thinking about it. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, I'll grab the icing on the cake. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So then they have a year or two to find a new house and they know, you know, we're up front with them. Look, this isn't a guarantee. It might not work, but we can't risk spending all this money because nothing else on your property would end up being a profitable project. Um, and then the third avenue would be buying uh, a fully entitled project already. So someone else, and we've done this too, um, this actually we're doing with our uh, big one coming up. Um, someone else did all the work. They spent a year or two going through this whole entitlement process we keep touching upon. Um, and they got approval from the zoning board. They got their variances granted. They then submitted everything to the city, eventually got their permits to actually de demolish or build uh, the new building, always build, sometimes also demolish the previous one. So they get their permit to build. Um, and then you buy that from them. So maybe though, this is where the, the situation is there, the is difference there. Maybe that's $500,000 property we were talking about earlier, the example. Maybe they got it entitled for 10 units. So now they have architectural plans that they had worked on and spent money on the whole time. They have their time and effort, their zoning attorney. And they did the, what we believe is the hardest part is, is really getting to that final step, dealing with the neighborhood groups and the mayor and all. The, and they say, yeah, I'll give you the, I'll sell you the permits to build this 10 unit building here, shovel ready the day after you buy it, but it's going to cost you 1.2 million, something like, so that's kind of the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, three yeah. avenues we've I, gone. I heard, I, I believe I had a gentleman who came on who talked about this strategy or it's almost like you're selling the potential. Hey, here's what we've done. We've gotten this, we've gotten the permits, gotten this. I think it was a land guy. Maybe he was saying, Hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'll have to excuse me for the language. Cause I'm still you know, getting familiar uh, whether it was the variance or whether it was shovel ready. I think is what you said. Uh, you know, and, and it's almost like, it's, I don't know if it's flipping. I don't even call it that, but you're really saying, Hey, or you know what? It was someone else who had actually done a proof of concept almost like a POC where you're saying, Hey, you know, I've done a few value add units and I know this isn't necessarily what you're talking about, but it just reminded me. And by yeah. the way, you could just take it off. This is the scope of work. This is what you can continue to do. And this is what yep. you'll get. So that's kind of what it reminds me of, of uh, that's very neat. Wow. So from a, from an investing perspective, um, I'm very curious. Maybe you guys might be able to give insights on us here as we're listening in a lab. And, and it's been such such good gems um, that I, I, there's so much curiosity. Every time you say something, I'm thinking of the next question of, you know, as you're speaking. But is there a way, um, and, and maybe uh, Nick, you can uh, help me with this one. Uh, what's your take on, on doing single uh, capital raising for single properties versus what funds do where they kind of allocate maybe the risk like is that something that's ever come up is that something you guys even dabble in do i have it completely wrong just because i'm thinking you know you guys might be able to balance you know if someone you know maybe it's a fund maybe it's like hey you know this property c we're working on but at least b and a will balance this thing out like 
would that work in your favor with your model? And if not, why not? Is it more complex? I mean, it seems like you guys are good with the paperwork. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't be, it, it, what, what, what's your take on that? Is that something you guys have explored maybe from a business model perspective? And We've if, always done um, individual project raises. Um, and I think it's because we've been, we've been within a niche, but we're also kind of opportunistic. Whereas I think if we, started a fund we'd want it to be unified under kind of like a general philosophy of the sort of acquisitions we'd be pursuing um, like most funds are and i think we have a a business strategy that we're just getting into right now Mm -hmm. um, of converting offices into apartments Um, that would actually be that would actually be a good fit for a fund model um, once we've done, you know, we've got a few off, off the ground, um, get a couple of those projects under our belt that would probably fit for a fund because you could say, okay, the strategy of the fund is we're going into these older office, uh, buildings that are kind of in areas that are more appropriate for residences. We're leveraging our skill and getting these projects approved and entitled to get a, a special permission to do apartments instead. Um, we, we kind of pursue opportunity zone stuff. We pursue stuff with historic tax credits. Um, I think that would be a good fit for the fund, but whereas on the condo side of things, it's, uh, it, you could do a fund and I'm sure they exist, but, uh, in my opinion, it's too, each deal is kind of its own animal and it's more appropriate for individual raises. Interesting. So, so, and when you say each, each deal is different, um, do you have, based on the way you guys raise your capital, is it more of you have your investors where, you know, some of them are more risk adverse and you put them in this pool and some of them are not like, I'm just curious, like on a deal by deal, is it, is it the same for all the people that you serve or is it more like, Oh, I think we should call John, Joe and you know, Jill. Right. I think we, uh, oh, I think we, um, we kind of look at it as we, we would present anyone who's invested with us or who's interested in our projects. We'll present any project to them. Um, we don't necessarily um, think, okay, this one might be too risky for, uh, for John. This one's better for Jill, something like that. Um, we'll present it, but we certainly, the feedback we'll get is clear sometimes that, okay, I, I don't think I'm interested in this one. Show me the next one or, oh, perfect. This is the one I've been waiting for, you know, that, that type of thing. Gotcha. That's fascinating. So as far as the, you know, the end goal with you guys, it seems like you, you know, you talked about, uh, office to multifamily, you know, uh, obviously the condo thing is, is a big niche. Do you guys, uh, as far as your portfolio goes, do you, do you also do just traditional value ads or, or do you stay away from it? Or is that part of the portfolio? Cause I think I see something here uh, about long-term value add multifamily. Is that something you guys are still actively doing or, or have you, you know, dabbled with or. Yeah, we have a portfolio kind of of our own here. Um, and I, I would I would say the the office strategy is kind of value add. It's just like value add plus with more steps. So I, we would still consider that value add. But we're more um, since we're developers, we feel that we can generate even greater returns um, pursuing these sort of more complicated projects that maybe some other people um, couldn't do. And 
we see a lot of competition in the market of just kind of light value add, um, especially right now. So this makes more sense to us. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I got to tell you, after listening to you, that you both, you know, it may, really makes me want to be as passive as an investor as possible and me trusting you guys to handle those meetings, handle the paperwork. I mean, if, if there's ever a, a pitch about why you should become a passive investor, it's for that. And obviously you guys are good at what you're doing and you, I can definitely say you're earning the dollars of your, uh, all your investors that come along the board because uh, it's certainly a niche. And, and I think obviously everyone else uh, who, who's investing with you is getting a reward from it, from your, uh, your strategy, your hard work and your dedication. And, and, and uh, it's really uh, remarkable to see that. Um, what's next for you guys though? You know what? I, let's give a little prediction here. You know, we're here Q4, 2021 you guys are young you guys are crushing it you know how big is this vision you know what do we want to do that we haven't done you know where do you guys see you know you're 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 taking this entire this team where are you taking it next to is it some of the same you got some projections you want to put out there and that way i can look back and say i remember they told me they weren't messing around they said it in the lab what do you guys got for me uh we um we really want to grow this um office conversion um, component of our business. Um, we're looking at, uh, we're still focusing in Boston on the condos. We, we don't see that, you know, dying down anytime soon, but as Nick mentioned, we're, we're sort of opportunistic guys. So we're also looking at trying to develop larger scale apartment complexes outside of Boston where there's not as much red tape, there's demand for uh, rentals. It's tough within Boston. At least we, you know, some of the bigger guys can really do it. Um, and they have methods that have worked. Maybe they've owned a piece of land for a long time. But um, for our company, it's been difficult to find uh, a way to develop apartment buildings that we can hold on to in rent after mm-hmm. the fact. The condo strategy, of course, we're selling these units to homeowners afterwards. Um, so as Nick said, we have a portfolio ourselves of some apartments in and around Boston. Uh, but that's kind of the, the next frontier for us is expand upon this office conversion. There's a lot of underutilized office space in surrounding cities of Boston where the zoning code is not as restrictive and the city wants to work with developers. So to fix some of these buildings up and, and utilize them again, put them in their sort of best and highest use. So that's something we really want to focus on as well as trying to um, brand new construction um, new apartment buildings. We, we really want to focus on that too outside Boston that we can hold on to that winter spring capital can own, um, and rent out, um, you know, for indefinitely. Um, so those are two things we're really focusing on. And then aside from that, um, we started a, a nonprofit, uh, the lucky puppy society. And so what that's about is, Oh, you, you saw this. Yeah. So that's, yeah. um, we can get into that more, but those are kind of the, the main things, um, that we're focusing on that, that provides funds for surgeries for dogs, um, where the owner otherwise couldn't afford it. So a percentage of all profits that we make goes towards that. Oh man, that's all. That's amazing. I, I you know, I was involved a couple of years ago into a, a called uh, evolved, uh, enterprise, uh, which is a, you know, a, it's a book actually, have it around here but it's uh you know every strong company has has a you know deeper rooted mission uh and i i love that that i saw that you guys recently it seems like in your recent venture how did how did you get into the lucky puppy society like how how did that come about how, you know 
I think it was it was Eric and his wife's idea originally. Um, we all kind of grew up with dogs, big you know, big dog people, and Eric's wife came from a um, a nonprofit background, so it just kind of seemed like a uh, something that that might make sense, and it was kind of in the in limbo of like IRS paperwork for like a year. Um, we actually tried to start the company a while ago and it took a long time to get all the paperwork filed because it's a nonprofit. Um, now it's up and running. So we're, we're pretty excited about it. We have a form on our website, luckypuppysociety.org, where if you know someone who has a dog in need, you can fill out that form. Um, I've tried to call, you know, local dog shelters and veterinarians and stuff. So just anyone who knows someone who has a dog in need, go to our website, fill out that form. We'll get in contact with you. Wow. That's awesome. I, that's, that's really neat. I almost have to ask, cause you kind of just led up there. Like do you, do you, the buildings that you guys build, are they pet free or is there like some synergy there? Like, no, they're no? pet friendly. Pet friendly. Yeah. That's what I mean. Pet that's, I meant pet friendly, not pet free. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. thanks for the correction yeah no that's wow what is you talk about vertical integration that's the way to bring it all, all together right there that's yep. awesome that's a it's really neat to see always uh you know something bigger than the business and, and, and that taps into uh, a nonprofit. so uh, i can't tell you how much i appreciate you guys coming on uh kind of sharing your your very on in reason i say unorthodox is because um you know we've had we're 155 episodes in we haven't had uh, this kind of uh, uh, of, of enlightening uh, enlightenment in the, uh, the the condo development space, and um, I think it's something that what I like is operators like you guys when you're able to uh, have a unique selling point, differentiate yourself from the pack, um, you know, and at the same time continue to bring value, no matter how much how much of the paperwork is. Um, you know, it, that's, that's what it's all about. And that's how you differentiate, so differentiate yourself into the marketplace. Um, try saying that three times fast, but, um, but no, it, it's really, it's nice. It's really nice. And, and, you know, I, it, it was, uh, definitely, uh, glad we didn't let the serendipity go to waste here. You guys being from Massachusetts, I'll be able to, you know, stay in touch with you guys and maybe see some of the kind of work you're doing as I'm even yeah. just driving by. So, um, you know, I want to give you guys a big thanks. And um, I know you guys are coming in and you're, you you got tons that you're going to offer. So we definitely want to keep tabs on you. Uh, I know this is winter spring capital. Uh, where can the people find out more about what you two are doing collectively? And then we do have a little special present on behalf of Nick that I want to highlight to the listeners. But where can we tap in with you guys uh, collectively and even individually? We're pretty active on Instagram, uh, just Winter Spring Capital, one word. Our website, winterspringcapital.com. Tons of articles, um, investor guides. We've got a, an investor toolkit on there, a bunch of useful stuff um, to look at on our website. And then Eric and I are on LinkedIn, just their names. That's right. If you guys check out that LinkedIn, you see that these guys are not playing around. They are dedicated and they have very similar backgrounds. They've been doing this together and it's refreshing to see you guys are still pushing through that vision and making things happen and opening up doors and uh, building them. Uh, no pun intended there as well. Um, but uh, absolutely want to give uh, Nick, you know, if, if you guys want to tap in a little bit more into the development space, I know I will be. 
just educating myself more on it. Uh, Nick, you do have a new book called Millions Through Multifamily Development that we will certainly be including in the show notes. Uh, where can people, where is the best place people can check that out? Is it, you know, on website, Amazon? Where, where should I, where should we go for the book? Yeah, you can get it for free um, at winterspringcapital.com slash development dash book. Development, uh, one more time. Development dash book. Perfect, perfect. So that's development dash and then book after uh, winter spring. Uh, is it winterspring.com? Did I get that? Winterspringcapital.com. Right? Winterspringcapital.com. This is he's challenging me, just like uh, <laughs> Eric's last name here, just testing me. Winterspringcapital.com forward slash um, book. Development dash book. Development dash book. There you go. Whew, gosh, guys, <laughs> if you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel here. Uh, I've clearly I've, I've had an, uh, a wonderful time with these guys. And uh, I want to make sure that you guys check that out. It will be in the show notes. Uh, you won't miss it. And you definitely want to make sure you're supporting these two gentlemen. And off we go with winter spring. And just like that, guys, we are out. If you're a real estate professional, a real estate agent, a real estate investor, a lender, a multifamily syndicator, a contractor, you name it, and you're looking to grow your online presence, but you have no idea how to get started or simply don't have the time, at Invested Talent, we help real estate professionals extend their current business to social media. Why is this important? Without this, you wouldn't be listening to this show and your own host, Ruben Kanya, and his team would not have done deals they've done today. As a matter of fact, Social media has helped us keep this show together, which now exceeds a billion dollars worth of real estate from our guests collectively. That's right. Our reputation, opportunities, partnerships, and most importantly, real estate transactions were started directly from social media. If you're a real estate professional and you lack an existence on a media platform, Invested Talent can help. Simply go to investedtalent.com forward slash social media and make sure you click the get in touch button to get in touch with our team. Again, that's investedtalent.com forward slash social media and get in touch with our team. You focus on being the brand and we'll help you build it. Now, if you know anything about the lab, you know that we like to give practical advice. So if you feel that this podcast was of any value to you, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes by going directly to the podcast app from the show's page. Scroll all the way down and leave us a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment. Lastly, and most importantly, share this episode with a friend you feel will benefit this episode the most. Remember, There's a you and I in build. Let's build, y'all.